0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, June 4th. I'm Marco Werman. China tried to ignore today's Tiananmen Square anniversary. But the Shanghai Stock Exchange didn't cooperate.
1: The composite index closed down 64.89 points. Now that might just sound like a random number, but break it down, 6489, June 4th, 1989.
0: And later, watching the transit of Venus back in 1769.
2: This was the first time science had looked beyond international borders in a large way to collaborate on this one essential problem.
3: PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm
0: Marco Werman. This is The World. China doesn't like its citizens remembering Tiananmen Square. But today, tens of thousands of them did, with a candlelight vigil in the former British colony Hong Kong. It was 23 years ago today that the Chinese military sent tanks into Beijing's Tiananmen Square. The crackdown brought weeks of peaceful protest by students to a violent end. Hundreds of people were killed. The Chinese government goes to great lengths to keep people from marking the anniversary, as the world's Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing told me earlier today.
1: The government makes a point every year of rounding up dissidents or activists or people who are known to speak out about what happened on June 4th, 1989, and they take them outside of Beijing, away from anyone who could interview them. Also, a lot of younger people in China aren't even really aware of what happened on June 4th. But there have been a couple of interesting little ways of marking the anniversary this year that don't normally happen. There was a little protest in the southern town of Guiyang, far away from Beijing. And then very interestingly, in Shanghai, the... Stock exchange, the composite index, closed down 64.89 points. Now, that might just sound like a random number, but break it down, 6489, June 4th, 1989. That was commented on quite a lot on China's version of Twitter, Weibo.
0: Interesting. Now, I just have to know before we go on, with Hong Kong part of China, how, how does the Chinese central government in Beijing allow protests in Hong Kong, but not on the mainland?
1: From the moment Hong Kong became part of China in 1997, the Chinese government promised that as part of the one country, two systems deal, Hong Kong could maintain its way of life. And that included having demonstrations. The government has sort of squeezed a little bit on some demonstrations and on freedom of the press. But I think it knows that if it were to ban this particular protest in Victoria Park, that Hong Kong residents would be up in arms. They would see this as as a bridge too far.
0: As far as online China goes, it seems there's only one system. The government has been blocking some search terms on the web in the lead up to this anniversary. What kind of things are they blocking?
1: All kinds of things. So they've been blocking, of course, obvious things like crackdown, tanks, gunfire, protester, but also words like candle, fire, anniversary, today, tomorrow, Victoria Park, silent tribute, black clothes, because some Chinese people online were calling for people to just stroll in the streets wearing black clothes as a sign of remembrance for the dead. That's a long list. And I've only barely scratched it. I mean, it's, you know, several dozens of terms, uh, possibly hundreds.
0: The United States, Mary Kay, has called for all of those still jailed over the uh, Tiananmen demonstrations to be freed. Do you know how many demonstrators are still in prison?
1: So the Hua Foundation, which was founded to try to keep track of Tiananmen political protesters and prisoners, says that there are somewhere between seven and 12 still in prison. One of them uh, was charged with arson, one with counter-revolutionary crimes unspecified. When the Chinese prison authorities have been asked about the fate of these people, they claim they don't know anything about them. But Due Hua does have records that these people are still in prison. It's calling on the Chinese government to it's high time to release these people. They've already served 23 years. The Chinese government responds to all such requests by saying this is an internal matter and we will resolve it in our own way and in our own time.
0: Mary Kay, you said earlier that a lot of young Chinese don't know much about Tiananmen Square. Are Chinese students taught about Tiananmen Square? Is it in the curriculum?
1: The government has tried and seems to have largely succeeded in wiping out the collective memory of the Tiananmen demonstrations in the younger generation. After the Tiananmen crackdown, the Chinese government started a program of patriotic education in schools to try to encourage the younger generation to think about the common enterprise of China regaining its rightful place in the world as the top nation. And of course, it did not talk about the Tiananmen crackdown, except to say that there was this disturbance by counter-revolutionaries and some members of the People's Liberation Army were killed. And when I've talked to young people over the last few years, I've actually been shocked at the lack of knowledge about what happened in 1989 and also Mm. the lack of interest.
0: The world's Mary Kay Magstad speaking with us from Beijing. Thank you, as always, Mary Kay.
1: Thank you, Marco.
0: Many Chinese artists have tried to keep memories of Tiananmen Square alive. Here's an excerpt from a Chinese poem written four years ago to remember the 1989 crackdown.
4: Nineteen years ago, June's cruel tragedy, wind so cold, Rain flooded piles of broken stone poured into the hearts of the mothers. Cruel June, without shoots, it withers, without flowers, it fades. Before everything not yet arrived, everything was wholly destroyed.
0: That's the opening of Child Mother Spring. It was written by Liu Xiaobo. He was a leading figure during the Tiananmen protests. You've likely heard the name Liu Xiaobo before. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2010, but the Chinese government prevented him from attending the awards ceremony in Oslo. Liu is in prison, accused of inciting subversion of state power. The man who just read the poem is author Jeffrey Yang. He translated Liu's poems. Jeffrey, the book is called June 4th Elegies. It's a series of poems that Liu wrote over 20 years after the Tiananmen uprising. How much of that time has Liu spent in prison? Have the authorities allowed him to even write in prison?
4: Yeah, this book collects 20 years of these elegies he's been writing every year around the spring in commemoration of June 4th. And um, he's been in and out of prison over that time. And then, of course, he's been sentenced to that 11-year prison sentence, and he's been under arrest since 2009.
0: And presumably the poems in June 4th Elegies have been written when he wasn't in prison. I I doubt the authorities allow him to write in prison.
4: Well, actually, they did in the re-education camp. Everything, of course, gets vetted, but I think that's one of the reasons why, for instance, in the 90s when he was in that re-education for labor camp, His wife, Liu Xia, visited him multiple times, and they exchanged poems.
0: Tell us more about Liu Xiaobo and his background pre-Chenaman Square.
4: Yeah, Liu Xiaobo, he became prominent in the 80s, uh, mostly as a cultural critic, like a literary critic. Uh, He was a young teacher there. And um, kind of seen as an iconoclast, he never minced words with what he thought about certain issues and writing. And before Tiananmen, he was that year before he was teaching abroad in various places. And right when everything broke out in 89, he actually was in New York teaching at Columbia, and then quickly went back to Beijing.
0: Have you ever had a chance to meet him?
4: No, I have not. I've never met him before. I mean, I knew his role in the June 4th movement as I was studying the literature and, you know, the movement in college. So I knew of him then, but I've never been able to meet him yet. By the time I started translating him, he was already in prison.
0: So when you first read his work, Jeffrey, what specifically touched you that made you want to translate it?
4: The first poems I read of his were these poems that he wrote to his wife, Liu Xia, in prison, some of which are included in the back of this book, five of those poems. And they were just really moving and emotional poems. It was later on that I was given a copy of June 4th Elegies, the Chinese edition. But I mean, again, the emotional impact was immediate, and just the whole structure of the book was really unusual, written over the span of 20 years and just kind of returning to the same moment.
0: And describe the work itself.
4: Yeah. I mean, it's very gritty. It's also lyrical in a way, but I think kind of conversational also. It moves between a really bleak darkness to a very hopeful vein. I think the imagery is tragic, but it's also filled with this emotional core for those survivors of Tiananmen, but also for those who are seeking reparations, who lost loved ones then. I mean, it's trying to remember and say we can't forget this moment in history that's been erased from the national consciousness there.
0: Jeffrey Yang, could you give us a, another stanza, please, of Child Mother Spring by Leo Chabois?
4: Sure. Young departed souls, do not say defeat. Do not say 19 years of light's been wasted in the eulogies of the mothers. The children who collapsed in that moment have passed into everlastingness, blood once warm to this day still boiling. The candle flames cannot be cut off from the night. Age transcendent, death transcendent, offer unfinished love for the white hair of the mothers. Young departed souls believe in the mothers for maternal love is fire, which even if extinguished, can use its ashes to keep the promise. I just wanted to mention about that section of the poem, is yeah. that this this image of the mothers that comes through a lot, I mean, that's a very specific, you know, intentional, of course. But Liu Xiaobo, this whole book is dedicated to the Tiananmen mothers, which is this organization that was formed right after... June 4th. And they've been seeking everyone who lost loved ones during Tiananmen. They've also been trying to seek reparations from the government, public apologies. So that's very much why this image of the mothers comes through a lot in some of these poems.
0: Jeffrey Yang, you're an American of Chinese descent. What do you remember of the Tiananmen Square protest? Was it a big deal in your household?
4: Um, no, not at all. I mean, I was in high school in Southern California, a freshman And I didn't know anything about Tiananmen, and whether or not my parents were aware, I'm sure they were. It was never discussed at the time. Both of my parents were immigrants from the mainland to Taiwan. But for me, I mean, I have family and friends in China, and as it being my heritage, there is that connection and that feeling, you know, it's an honor to be able to translate something like this.
0: Author Jeffrey Yang is the translator of Liu Xiaobo's June 4th Elegies, poems that came out of the Tiananmen Square crackdown. Jeffrey, thank you very much indeed.
4: No, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: You can hear Jeffrey Yang reading a Liu Xiaobo poem about a young man killed in Tiananmen Square. That's at theworld.org. Astronomers around the world are eagerly anticipating the transit of Venus tomorrow. Later on the program, we'll hear what all the fuss is about, but first we have a special transit of Venus geo-quiz for you. (music) looking for a spot on Earth named after the second planet from the Sun. It's in the South Pacific, in French Polynesia, on the island of Tahiti. In fact, it's the northern tip of Tahiti. That spot is where British explorer James Cook famously went to observe the transit of Venus in 1769. What Captain Cook saw through his telescope helped shape our understanding of the solar system. So, can you name this peninsula of black sand at the northern tip of Tahiti? The answer is coming up in a few minutes. Thank you. Ahead in Israel,
3: some rabbis get on the government payroll. That's coming up on PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation. Celebrating Project Six, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project Six, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco
0: Werman. This is The World. Tourism is big business in New Zealand, but not all visitors are welcome, like invasive species. They have plagued the remote island region ever since humans first arrived 800 years ago. Now globalization is intensifying the threat. And as Sam Harnett reports, New Zealand is ratcheting up its response.
5: There's no one coming to you yet. No. No, okay, yes, we're from biosecurity, so if you just tell us you've been fishing or swimming or champing,
6: At a ferry dock in the small town of Picton, a biosecurity officer hands out pamphlets to drivers waiting for the boat that runs between New Zealand's two main islands.
5: This is Didymo, which is a brown algae that destroys all the lakes and rivers. So if you've been fishing, swimming, you we- could be carrying it.
6: Didymo, or as the locals call it, rock snod, was first seen here on the South Island in 2004. The invasive algae has since infested waterways throughout the island. In an effort to stop its spread, government officers now routinely hose down any clothing, equipment, or vehicles that might have come in contact with it.
5: So everything's just got to be washed down before you go to the North Island? Yeah.
6: If biosecurity is a foreign concept to most visitors here, for New Zealanders, it's a fact of life. The isolated island country spends over 150 million U.S. dollars annually on border screening, eradication, and containment. And this year, the government created a whole new department to better coordinate the effort. Wayne McNee runs the new primary resources ministry.
7: The reason we have difficulties are that we are an island nation, and
6: we don't have a lot of the pests and diseases that are present in other countries. So on the
8: plus side, because we don't have those pests and diseases, we have a lot of biodiversity in New Zealand.
6: On the downside, though, when these things do arrive, they can wreak havoc. McNee says increasing trade and tourism are making it harder than ever to keep them out. In the last decade alone, there have been incursions of rust fungi, Didymo, and a bacteria called PSA that's devastating kiwifruit, one of the country's most important crops.
8: You see that
9: scar there? That would be the entry point for PSA. So that's how it got into the plant.
6: Paul Jones owns a kiwifruit orchard outside of Tāpūki. He shows me an infected
9: vine that's oozing a red goo. The vine's own vascular system is carrying that around, and uh, it does not have a future. Whereas out here, there's still some healthy fruit.
6: Before we can go see Jones's healthy vines, we have to put on bright blue hairnets and get sprayed down with antibacterial solution.
9: So we just just spray your boots and uh, your hands.
6: Officials first detected PSA two years ago, and since then, it has spread quickly.
9: We've developed a set of hygiene standards, none of which we used to think about before PSA. It's costing us a lot of money just in terms of control
6: mechanisms. The industry says it'll be impossible to contain the disease. Instead, it's trying to develop new strains of the fruit that are immune to the infection. But Jones says the outbreak has already ruined many growers. The government acknowledges that no amount of security could keep out every biological stranger. Microbes can slip in with tourists, cargo ships, or even on gusts of wind from Australia, more than 1,000 miles away. And many interlopers have been brought in on purpose. Introduced livestock, crops, and pets have become a big part of the landscape. Some newcomers are a boon for the economy, like sheep and wine grapes. Others have become a national nuisance.
9: Cats, rats, that's Norway rats and ship rats.
6: Herb Christophers of the Department of Conservation says the list of imported mammals is a long one.
9: Stoats, ferrets, weasels, which were introduced to control. Rabbits, which were introduced. Seven species of deer, uh, pigs, goats.
6: Christopher says the naturalization of these pests served as a cautionary tale for a country with some of the most unusual wildlife on Earth. Before humans arrived in the 13th century, the only native land mammals here were bats. When New Zealand broke away from the other continents about 85 million years ago, modern mammals hadn't yet evolved. So thousands of unique animals evolved here instead, especially
9: birds. We have a bird which is nearly extinct called a kōkākō, which fills the same role as, say, a squirrel. We have other birds which, why bother flying when your food's on the ground so their wings became vestigial, such as the kiwi, so it's our national icon.
6: But unique wildlife, like the kokako and kiwi, proved easy prey for imported creatures like rats, stoats and possums. They've pushed dozens of native species into extinction and are now too pervasive to eradicate. The only hope is to contain them, which is a big part of the country's biosecurity efforts. Let's clear that a wee bit. So these are Dock 200
8: traps. So they're designed to kill rats and stoats.
6: Ranger Duncan Kay tests out a spring-loaded trap near the South Island's tai Putini National Park.
8: It's got a, quite a bit of force, so... If the stoke puts his paw on that, he's pretty much a goner. So, we'll just pull this up, give a wee bit of a thud. Cool. So that looks like it's working well, so...
6: Traps like these are found all over New Zealand. So was a controversial pesticide that's banned in many other countries because it's so deadly to mammals. The exact reason why New Zealand has become the world's number one user. It's an extreme measure, perhaps but the government believes it's an important part of a broad national effort to fight back against invasive species. Herb Christophers of the Department of Conservation says it's not just about protecting New Zealand's agriculture or even its huge tourist industry. It's about protecting the country's national identity, for which there are no replacement strains.
9: To retain what is individual about New Zealand, we want to retain that biodiversity. We don't need any more introductions. Thank you very much.
0: For The World, I'm Sam Harnett, Picton, New Zealand. It's a sad day for internet users of a certain age. Eduard Hiel, the king of Soviet pop and YouTube sensation, Mr. Trololo, he passed away in St. Petersburg, Russia, today. He was 77. The world's Chris Wolf has this appreciation. Eduard Hiel was enormously popular in the old
8: USSR, but it wasn't until 2010 that the singer received the international stardom he, um, deserved. It was then that this 1976 video was posted on
3: YouTube.
8: It went viral, scoring millions of hits and spawning hundreds of parodies, including a cameo on Family Guy. For those of you who missed the video, you can see it at theworld.org. But if you can't wait, let me describe it. An ungainly Edward Heal, dressed in a plain brown Soviet-era suit jaunts across an epically kitsch yellow stage, pausing now and then to wag his finger at the audience that isn't there. His eye makeup is worthy of twilight, and his hair is of dubious human origin. His lips don't seem to move in time with his vocalization. At first glance, musically and visually, it's appalling. So bad, you can't believe it's real. And yet, after a minute or so, Heal suddenly starts to charm you. He's having a blast, Troller lowing away. And pretty soon, you're Troller lowing along with him. Within a few weeks of the original video coming out, we citizens of YouTube were introduced to the real Edward Heal. Enterprising reporters tracked him down in St. Petersburg. You watch nervously, expecting embarrassment or anger. Instead, Keel beams into the camera and picks up exactly where he left off, troller lowing away. Clearly, he hadn't lost any of his infectious charm and joie de vivre. In fact, he seemed genuinely flattered by his new fame, and he even enjoyed the endless parodies. Throughout it all, he just kept smiling. And so I, and who knows how many others we well, down a shot of Stoli tonight for Edward Heal for bringing us joy and reminding us how irresistible a smile and a positive attitude can be. For the world, this is Chris Wolf. Nazdrovya.
0: This is PRI I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, Anushka Shankar brings Indian and Spanish music together with her sitar. She says Spanish flamenco and Indian ragas have something
5: in common. In Indian dance, people wear bells on the feet to accentuate the foot patterns, and it's absolutely in tandem with the percussionist. And in flamenco, the same is true.
3: The RIs, The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's not going to happen again for another century or so. I'm talking about the transit of Venus. The transit happens when Venus passes between the Earth and the Sun. In a few minutes, we'll hear more about what that'll look like during tomorrow's transit of Venus. But I want to go back first to a previous transit, the one we mentioned today in our GeoQuiz. June 1769, and Britain's Captain James Cook was in Tahiti to witness the transit of Venus. Back then, it was more than a curiosity. Scientists were trying to answer a key question, how far away is the sun? Mark Anderson has written about that quest in a new book called The Day the World Discovered the Sun. Anderson says that in 1769, sky watchers scattered to different locations around the globe, And in each place, they measured the time it
2: took for Venus to cross the sun's face. They measured it in the Arctic and they measured it in the tropics. When you compare those durations, then you can do some clever triangulation to find the distances. Not just the distance to the sun, but the distance from every planet. Um, Because once you've solved that first problem, you know now the size scale of the solar system.
0: And that's what your book takes on, The Day the World Discovered the Sun, this kind of uh, race in 1769, more than 100 people all over the world carefully tracking Venus as it moved across the face of the sun. Um, You focus on three characters, very compelling characters. Tell us a bit about these men and their respective expeditions.
2: Well, Captain Cook is the most famous. He was pulled out of obscurity, really, Um, a lieutenant who was sent out to Tahiti, this newly quote-unquote discovered island. So he carried a, a ship full of scientists and naval officers and, and others. And his counterpart in France was an equally compelling character, although a little more obscure. His name was Jean-Baptiste Shopteau de Roche, a, a, a mouthful of a name, but <laughs> everyone called him Shop. And he traveled to the Baja Peninsula. Um, his counterpart in Austria was a Jesuit friar by the name of Hel, um Friar Maximilian Hell, Great and he, name. He traveled with an assistant named Janos Shinovich, at the invitation of the King of Denmark above the Arctic Circle to this remote Norwegian outpost named Vardo.
0: Well, Captain James Cook didn't have an easy time in in Tahiti. Um, In your book, you include some actually hilarious accounts of of what he and his men experienced. In fact, a a key instrument for observing the transit of Venus, uh, his sextant was stolen and dismantled by the locals. What, What was going on there?
2: Well, the Tahitians greatly valued metal, not just precious metals, but even things like iron and brass some of the Tahitian women would trade anything for even just nails.
0: Trade anything, like a a night of friendly companionship?
2: Yeah, exactly. And, in fact, Captain Cook, although he knew this going in, and he put strict prohibitions on his men for trading with the locals, nevertheless, just as backup, he kept a couple extra barrels of nails.
0: Right. So how did he get the sextant back?
2: Well, this involved some careful uh, diplomacy with the locals. Some of his uh, science team went on shore and they had kind of this back and forth with uh, with the the local chief. They went inland to talk to some of the people that they suspected had stolen it, and the marines were coming the marines who had been on captain cook 's ship but it was this diplomacy that that worked before before the marines arrived. Right. Um, the story of captain cook 's expedition could be could have been very different had had this uh, little diplomatic mission <laughs> not succeeded in returning the sextant.
0: So uh, tell us where in Tahiti uh, Captain James Cook uh, made his observations uh, for this transit of Venus.
2: Well, it's, it's a spot on the island, uh, and it's called Point Venus, um, and he named it that um, for obvious reasons. So, yeah. Yes. And so this was where they had set up their fort and where they'd set up their observatory.
0: So point Venus in Tahiti is the answer to our geo-quiz today. Um, you describe the global effort to observe the 1769 transit of Venus as the first international big science project, similar to today's International Space Station or the Large Hadron Collider. Explain what you mean.
2: Well, this was the first time that science had looked beyond international borders in a, in a, you know, in a large way to collaborate on this one essential problem. So it was a matter of sending scores of observers to different parts of the Earth. And then they all communicated their results back to a central clearinghouse in London and in Paris. Then people collated all those results and got some some amazing science was done as a result.
0: Well, right. So how accurate was the estimate of the distance to the sun once all
2: the data was collated? The problem was that there were so many observers that, in fact, there were more than 100 results that were reported back to London and Paris. And so what some people did is they just kind of took everything and they threw it into a hopper um, and out came not so great results. Mm. Um, but if you took the very best, as one astronomer, Thomas Hornsby at Oxford University did, he, he found results that we today can look at and say, wow, he got it at better than 99% accuracy. Mm.
0: Mark Anderson is author of the new book, The Day the World Discovered the Sun. Mark, thanks so much. Thank you. You can see Mark Anderson reading from his book, The Day the World Discovered the Sun, at theworld.org. Well, let's go to Point Venus in Tahiti now. That's where the senior contributing editor of Sky and Telescope magazine will be watching tomorrow's astronomical event. Kelly Beatty joins us from Tahiti. How close are you, Kelly, to where Captain Cook made his observations?
7: Marco, I have the black sand of Point Venus between my toes. I'm a few feet away from a replica of the fort that Captain Cook directed to make his observations, and it's really a beautiful morning here.
0: So, the transit can typically be seen from a pretty wide patch of geography. What are the probabilities that the same ideal viewing spot would be this location in Tahiti?
7: Well, you know, these things happen in pairs eight years apart and then not again for a century, and because they last so long, about six and a half hours for the little dot of Venus to cross the Sun, The Earth is turning, and a whole section of the Earth, most of it, in fact, turns into view of the Sun and can see this event as it happens. Someone may not see the beginning or the end or the entire thing, but they'll see at least a part of it.
0: And will people in the United States be able to see the transit of Venus tomorrow?
7: Absolutely. On the East Coast, the event begins at about 6 o'clock in the afternoon and runs until sunset. On the west coast, because of the time zone difference, it will begin at 3 o'clock and run until sunset. So they'll actually get to see more of it.
0: How can you watch it safely?
7: Well, we don't want anybody looking directly at the sun. There are all kinds of safe ways to do it. One is to create a pinhole camera. Another is to use special viewing glasses, not sunglasses. These are special glasses made for looking at the sun. And a third way is just to let the sun stream through one side of, say, a pair of binoculars onto a white card, projecting an image of the sun. Uh, If you've got really acute eyesight, you might be able to pick up Venus, but most people will do much better trying to project an image either onto a white card or a wall or something like that.
0: And you say you've got to have pretty good eyesight. I mean, just what does Venus appear like when this happens?
7: It is literally like a black BB against the sun, about 3% of the sun's diameter, This kind of gives you a sense of the scale of the solar system. Venus is a planet almost the same size as Earth, and yet it's completely dwarfed by the disk of the Sun. And so it will be a very small dot seen against the brilliant disk of the Sun.
0: What is the fascination for modern-day astronomers with the transit of Venus? Is there still a lot to be learned about the solar system during the transit?
7: Well, as you heard in the interview, you know, the reason for all the excitement about this back in the 1700s was trying to determine the scale of the solar system. These days, the scientific inquiry is a little more pointed. Venus, by going in front of the sun, mimics what is happening in distant solar systems which have other planets around them. And so literally by studying this event intensely, astronomers will have a leg up in trying to understand other worlds in other solar systems very, very far away.
0: Now, Tahiti, it's not the same place it was in Captain Cook's time. Can you imagine what it was like back then in 1769?
7: Captain Cook was the third European ship to visit Tahiti. It had only recently been discovered by the Europeans. And the inhabitants here were very friendly toward uh, Cook and his crew. And I find it a little bit ironic that given that warm welcome he got, he still felt compelled to build an actual fort and fortifications to surround the... uh, The telescope and and his men. It may be that he felt there would be excitement among the people there, just as there is today. I can tell you that here at Point Venus, they have knocked themselves out getting ready for this event. There will be events all day tomorrow, including, obviously, viewing of the transit, but there will be dancing and uh, speeches, certainly a great carnival atmosphere.
0: The next opportunity will be 2117 to see a transit of Venus. You and I, Kelly, won't be around. That's life, literally. But do you know the best viewing location for 2117?
7: You got me stumped there, Marco. I haven't worked that far ahead in my planner there, but I will tell you that it will happen in December. And so I would think that Tahiti in December would be another logically good place to go if it's visible from here.
0: All right, we'll leave that one for the geo-quiz in 2117. Kelly Beatty from Sky and Telescope magazine at Point Venus. Kelly, thanks a lot.
7: Always a pleasure, Marco. Take care.
0: We have pictures of the 2004 transit of Venus, Captain Cook's drawings of the 1769 transit, And a video extra with science journalist Mark Anderson reading from his book, The Day the World Discovered the Sun. It's all at theworld.org. And by the way, if you were wondering how far the Earth is from the sun, the answer to that is just about 93 million miles. In Israel, there is no separation between synagogue and state. The Israeli government pays the salaries of orthodox rabbis to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars a year. In contrast, Israel's reform and conservative movements get little if any state support or official recognition. But that's starting to change. For the first time, Israel says it will put some non-orthodox rabbis on the state payroll. That's welcome news for members of Israel's liberal Jewish community as the world's Matthew Bell reports from Jerusalem.
10: At a kibbutz in central Israel founded back in the mid-1940s, not long before the state of Israel itself, Miri Gold and her family keep a kosher kitchen. They follow the same rules as Jewish families all over Israel from all different religious backgrounds.
11: This is the milk silverware, you see? looks like this. And, uh... This is the meat silverware, two separate doors.
10: But so it's religion that also sets gold apart from most other Israeli Jews. She comes from the reform movement of Judaism. The 62-year-old grew up in Detroit and moved to this Israeli community of like-minded, non-Orthodox Jews in the late 1970s. She says there was something missing in their religious lives.
11: Children born in the kibbutz were reaching the age of Bar and Bat Mitzvah and uh, we didn't have anybody on the kibbutz to teach them or to carry out the ceremony. And when I saw that the boys were going to the ultra-Orthodox kibbutz down the road from here and the girls were driving into Jerusalem, I said, this is crazy, that's not why we came here.
10: Gold started studying to become a rabbi, and in 1999 she became only the third woman to be ordained in Israel.
11: Today we have about 40. And maybe to put it in perspective, in the States, half of the rabbis approximately now are women. So we're talking, I don't know, four or 500 women.
10: It's one example of the differences between Judaism in the United States and in Israel. Most American Jews are non-orthodox. They belong to the reform or conservative traditions where women can become rabbis but that does not happen in the Orthodox tradition in Israel, which is by far the most dominant stream of Judaism. State support for Orthodox rabbis here reflects that reality, but thanks to a legal case that Mary Gold took up in 2005, reform and conservative Judaism just won some unprecedented recognition. Israel's attorney general announced that the government would start paying the salaries of a small number of non-Orthodox rabbis, including Rabbi Gold. She says this is a victory for religious freedom in the Jewish state.
11: There's a given that we are a democratic country and that we're a Jewish country. And to me, in a democracy, there's room for different ways of Jewish expression. It seemed that it was time to ask that A rabbi for a liberal Jewish community would be a liberal rabbi.
10: But the ruling only goes so far. For starters, the government will pay salaries only to a limited number of non-Orthodox rabbis living in rural areas, not in big cities. The money will come through Israel's ministry of culture and sport. And that means reform and conservative rabbis on the state payroll will not be granted any significant new religious authority, as it always has in Israel. The Orthodox rabbinate will keep its control over matters of Jewish law, so a non-Orthodox rabbi still can't legally perform a marriage. Still, there's been no small amount of pushback from the Orthodox Jewish leadership. The Minister for Religious Services criticized Reform Judaism as a gateway to Jewish assimilation, and he threatened to resign if this court ruling goes into effect. Whether it's fair or not, the pushback should not be surprising, says Hebrew University history professor Eli Laterhandler. The Orthodox leadership has a vested interest in Israel, he says. That's because the Israeli government went to the country's leading religious communities a long time ago and put them in charge of questions about state
0: support for religious activities. So then you come to those religious communities, and in this case we're talking about the Orthodox rabbinical establishment, And you say to them, well, these are also rabbis. they say, come on, they're not. (laughs) They're not our rabbis, and therefore do not force them on us. We've got our own personnel. We've got our own patronage to to hand out. Thank you very much. We don't want anybody else uh, to be part of this situation.
10: Later, Handler says non-Orthodox Jewish leaders in Israel appear to have made a decision to try and break into the established Israeli system by winning legitimacy through state support. Some Israelis will see this as a slippery slope away from the Orthodox traditions. In a sense, Reform Rabbi Miri Gold hopes they're right. And with any luck, funding non-Orthodox rabbis will mark the beginning of a new era for the Jewish state where it embraces all Jews more equally." For the world, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem.
3: This is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at PBS Learning org.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Let's now meet sitar player Anushka Shankar. Her new album is a fusion of Indian classical styles with Spanish flamenco. It's called Traveler. The title is a nod to the Roma people who traveled from India to Europe centuries ago and brought some of the roots of flamenco music with them. But the title Traveler obviously fits Anushka Shankar herself. As a child, she went on tour with her father Ravi Shankar. And like her father, she's forged musical connections across borders while keeping a foot in traditional Indian classical music. The world's Arun Roth recently caught up with Anushka Shankar in New York.
9: Listening to Anushka Shankar's latest project, Traveler, you're struck not by a clash of styles, North Indian classical and Spanish flamenco but by how hard the music swings, as Duke Ellington would say. It sounds so natural. The performers jam like they're totally at home with each other. It took a lot of hard work to get there. When I asked Anushka about the technical problems involved in fusing the styles, she practically lit up.
5: It's funny because when I talk about this record, the focus is obviously on the common link because that's what it was about. But more than common links, there are differences because these are two very distinct styles of music.
9: She says the key was meeting the right producer, Javier Limon, who's considered the foremost flamenco producer today. He's also a musician and composer in his own right. He
5: just would sit with me in the first few sessions of of recording. We actually barely wrote music. We just sat and listened to loads of music. And he played me loads of flamenco forms and showed me the differences between them. And I did the same with the Indian music and I was showing him what ragas are and showing him the different styles and how to use a (laughs) sitar. And so then we would kind of separate and then go back and write individually and bring things back to each other and then flesh it out in a way where he'd bring me flamenco and I'd sort of try and fit it to the sitar or I'd bring a raga and he'd, you know, fit it to flamenco rhythms.
9: Adding ragas to flamenco rhythms turned out to be the easier job. Melody is the big problem. Not only are Indian and European instruments tuned differently, Hindustani music has no concept of harmony in the Western sense.
5: So we'd have to make a lot of choices and say, okay, in this piece, this is a flamenco form, so I'm going to try and abandon my raga brain and and have the sitar be more flamenco, or vice versa, and we would have to just keep making choices.
9: On one song, Valeria con Ricardo, Anushka manages to jam with an instrument built for Western harmony, the piano. But flamenco pianist Pedro Ricardo Mino makes it sound almost effortless.
5: he really gets that concept of what a raga is and he spends a lot of time working out on his piano what scale I've chosen for us to play on and he's actually using the full breadth of the piano but purely within uh, the scale of the raga that I'm playing in which is pretty mind-blowing
3: actually.
9: issues were worked out, the musicians could start exploring common ground. One connection between Indian and flamenco music literally jumped out.
5: If you look at dancing more than anything, the footwork and the spinning and the style of dance in flamenco and the Indian classical forms and Rajasthani folk forms, there's so much that's similar that you don't really see in other places uh, that don't make sense. And so I felt like I, I could buy into the fact that there was a connection and I was really curious to find out more about it.
9: And then the rhythmic quality of the dance. I know in Indian dance and in flamenco dance, you, you hear the feet.
5: Yes, absolutely. The footwork is so important. You you got it. Um, in, in, in Indian dance, people wear bells on the feet to accentuate the foot patterns. And it's absolutely in tandem with the percussionist. The footwork is as important. And, um, and in flamenco, the same is true. It's quite amazing.
9: On Traveller, Shankar brought dancers into the studio and made sure to record their feet when they traded rhythms with Indian drums. has made a career of cross-cultural explorations, working with artists from Jean-Pierre Rampal to Herbie Hancock. But she believes Traveler is her most successful fusion yet because of the time she's taken to so deeply immerse herself in the flamenco tradition. After a year developing the music in the studio, Shankar says it's taken on a new life as she's taken her musicians on the road.
5: It feels like at the end it doesn't sound as difficult as it was because I've just worked with such amazing musicians. Because like, they are each so strong in their own tradition, but their minds are so open that they're able to then meet each other halfway or learn and cross over, and they all love that and they have that passion for it. So I, I can't believe I get to, you know, I get to sort of teach people my music and have them bring so much magic to it. It's it's amazing.
9: For the world, I'm Maroon Roth in New York.
0: See videos of some live performances by Anushka Shankar as well as more of Arun's interview with her. All of that's at theworld.org. Our Boston team includes Stephen Snyder and Mary Lou Ward. In London are Rob Hugh Jones, Rahul Joglekar, and Ian Rosser. The world's engineers are Louis Cronin, Robin Moore, Tina Toby, and Mike Wilkins. Our online team is led by Stephen Davey with Manya Gupta and Michael Rass. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. And by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. Macfound.org PRI Public Radio International